Hello and a very warm welcome to our second edition of The Organ Podcast, which since we last met has now got a nice sparkly name, Pipe Up The Organ Podcast. Answer on a postcard for any other puns on my name. It was this or plumbing. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about three pieces, the first of which by a composer who this year would be celebrating his 150th anniversary, the second of which is dedicated to the one-armed bandit who occasionally cheers me up, and the third by an American composer who's really best known for his honky-tonk jazz or ragtime piece on the piano. And I'm really delighted to be joined today by my colleague Ben Saunders from the Diocese of Leeds. So Ben, thank you for joining us and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. It's great to be joining you today, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Enjoying the sunshine we've got coming in glimpses. Oh, well, I'm afraid I'm up in Settle and it's raining like mad here today. But we're looking forward to the nice weather tomorrow, hopefully. It's good for the greenery. Well, Ben, you've very kindly agreed to do uh, what we're calling a bank holiday bonus, but next to recital on Monday, because, of course, we're not doing these live anymore. Um, normally, we'd be in half term and we'd all be having a, uh, might say, a well-deserved break. But now everything is being online. We thought, well, let's keep going. Let's have another recital on Monday. So uh, you very kindly stepped into the breach to, to play for us. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the programme we're going to hear this coming Monday. Well, you might say the programme's recently discovered because it's from my dim and distant past. Uh, All the tracks are from live recordings of organ recitals I've done, and I think they're dating back to about 1995. That's at St Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh, 2008, Huddersfield Town Hall, and 2010, Cologne Cathedral. So I think I, certainly for the first one of those recordings, I had an awful lot more hair. (laughs) Am I right in thinking the St Giles recording must have been done quite soon after that organ was installed? That's right, David. I was very lucky to get a job there, actually, because I'd finished at Downing College in Cambridge, uh, where I believe you might have also studied as well. And I was unsure, really, what to do with my life. Um, I'd studied politics and philosophy, and uh, I thought, well, do I want to do music? Because I've been an organ scholar, I've enjoyed the choirs, um, not been so keen on the organ side. And I decided to be a marriage guidance counsellor. That lasted about two weeks, and I rang up my old teacher, a new fantastic organ in Edinburgh um, at St Giles, and why don't I give Herrick Bunny, that's the wonderful name, the organist there, a ring and see if he's looking for an assistant. So Peter kindly did that for me. I went to play, I think it was the G minor Fantasia and Fugue, the Bach for Herrick. And uh, a few days later, I was playing for services at St. Giles. The organ was uh, put in by Salverson's, you know, the big shipping company. Oh, no, was it a, le- a bequest or a legacy? Is that right? I think it might have been in memory of one of the Salverson family. I could be wrong about that. There is a plaque on the side of it. But it was quite something when it was put in. And when I became assistant organist there, the organ was still having a bit of fine-tuning in terms of its stop action. And I also remember uh, people from Riga coming over, Riga the organ company, not the city, to revoice some of the stops as the organ was gradually sort of settling in to its new home there. And there are very few Regas in this country, I think. There's, I know there's one in London, isn't there? St Marylebone Parish Church, but there can only be a handful of the... They're Austrian, I think, aren't they? There must be only a handful in, in the UK or Scotland as well. That's right. The only other one I've played um, is at Clifton Cathedral, which is quite a nice instrument, but 
The, the one at St. Giles was really special. The finish on it was absolutely exquisite. You know, um, if you wanted to look at the monitor for watching the conductor, you would slide up um, a piece of very nicely carved marble and everything was inlaid beautifully, uh, wood, marble. The actual architectural um, finish of the organ in terms of the case, uh, I think it was by Douglas Laird, a, a famous Edinburgh firm of architects. And if you've seen the instrument, David, you'll know it's sort of standing in a medieval cathedral, this bright red kind of spaceship right um, in the transept. It's, stri- it's certainly striking, isn't it? I, I confess I haven't ever heard it live, but I have seen it. And, and there's that wonderful chapel. Is it the Thistle Chapel going a little bit further into the corner of the cathedral? That's right. It's the Order of the Thistle. Although um, St Giles is called a cathedral, it is no such thing at all because the basic thing that makes something a cathedral is the presence of the cathedra, in other words, the chair of the bishop. And, of course, St Giles... Since the Reformation in Scotland, which was, I suppose, a a lot more severe than it was in England, uh, sort of Calvinistic, you had all these separate orders developing. And there were an awful lot of special services in St. Giles for, for example, the Knights of the Thistle. That's the chapel you refer to. There was the, the constables. Now, there was a procession of constables, which was sort of geriatric gentlemen carrying truncheons. I never quite worked out what that was about, but I remember Herrick Bunny saying to me, you know, there's all these strange orders and processions and civic events at St Giles. And he said, you know, we've got to try and make them look like they actually mean something, and it's the job of the organist to provide a sense of occasion. And he was brilliant at, at transforming, you know, what could be an absurd uh, sort of huddle of elderly gentlemen into something that just looked and sounded magnificent just by the way he used that organ in the space. He was known for his hymn playing, wasn't he, as well, I I think? I'm glad you've mentioned that. Um, I felt very lucky, I suppose, to work with somebody that, not quite the age of my great-grandfather, but certainly he would have been an elderly grandfather, And because the Church of Scotland doesn't have a strong liturgical tradition, obviously in the way that the Catholic Church does, and to an extent the Anglican Protestant Church does, you have to work with what you've got. And the services in St Giles were very much centred around hymn singing. Now, Herrick had studied, I think, and was friends with people like George Thalbin Ball, the organist of the Temple Church, and I think it also studied with Herbert Howells. And he had this style of hymn playing I would describe as symphonic. So he would look at the whole architecture of the hymn. He'd look at the words especially um, and the whole stanza of the poetry and paint the words with, with all the colours of the organ. And not only the colours of the organ, but the way he went for the very big shapes in the melody and um, really thickened out a lot of the texture with the left hand. He certainly never played the choir parts that were written on the page, you know, the four-part choral parts. It was like listening to a symphony. And when it was right, and it often was right, you sometimes just had to hold on to something near you because the um, effect was absolutely emotionally devastating. It, It was really quite incredible. Was there much reharmonization as well, or was it more just adapting what he could see on the page. Thankfully, there was very little in the way of reharmonization, harmonic gimmicks, 
and very little in the way of my pet dislike, Descants. He just really worked with what was on the page, but played it as a symphony orchestra would play and played very much into the space. It, it really was quite incredible. And I've never heard anybody play hymns like that since. I do my best uh, to provide a pale imitation on the, on the rare occasion I play for services. It's quite a skill, isn't it? You, it almost, one might say it's a, a dying art. You mentioned Thorben Ball as well, but you hear about this generation who would, I guess also that generation who would go up to the organ off with an orchestral, a full orchestral score and play from it. Um, clefts or transpositions um, wouldn't really be anything to put them off. I'm thinking about Edinburgh. It's a very, very diverse city on the organ front, isn't it? I seem to remember you've got, obviously, the Riga. Uh, there's the wonderful uh, Willis organ in the Episcopal Cathedral. There's quite a lot going on there as an organ scene, isn't there, I think? There is. I mean, there's there's several notable organs. I think one of the best is um, the Willis organ, um, Father Willis organ in St Stephen's Church, or former church down in Stocksbridge. When I was in Edinburgh, there was a Peter Collins organ put into Greyfriars Church. And there was also, I think it was a Frobenius organ in the Canongate Church. They were all very nice instruments, but having played them all, I think St Giles, you would say, is one of the great instruments of the world. And I was actually brought up in Edinburgh. I don't know if you know David. I went to a school called George Heriot's, which is just round the corner from Greyfriars. If you've ever seen the film The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, you can certainly recognise a lot of the scenes there that I would have known sort of walking to school every day. Dame Maggie Smith, did she not win an Oscar for that? I think that was one, one of her... Exactly, that, that really got a career going. And I've, it's funny with, you know, having a bit more time at home, I've been searching to try and stream The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie because I think it's one of the greatest films ever made but I cannot find it on a streaming service for love or money, so you must let me know if you come across it. <laughs> well, thinking of um, going from Maggie Smith now to, to Giles Swain, I bet that's never been done before. Um, the piece you're going to be presenting for us from St Giles is, is Giles Swain's Riff Raff, isn't it? Which we were talking just earlier um, was, I think, premiered at St Albans by um, Andrew Parnell. It's a... I suppose in some ways it has a slightly cult status. It's one of these modern pieces, perhaps minimalistic, which some organists play, but it's quite a lengthy piece, isn't it? Perhaps you could give us a, a little flavour of what we might hear. Yeah, I think it's um, round about 20 minutes longer. And you use the word there, minimalistic. It is and it isn't. I, th I think the reason it is such a great piece of music is it doesn't easily fit into any box. So it's built, I mean, the name Riff Raff, you know, is a partly political statement, I think, and partly a musical statement. Giles Swain, I remember listening to, and he was talking about Riff Raff, and he was making a critique of, I suppose, what he would call academic music composers, you know, the, the sort of people that work in universities on a full salary, composing music, but not actually having to earn a living by selling that music. And, and he spoke about music that supplies no demand and fulfills no function, perhaps as a sort of critique of that sort of music. So the the raff thing, I, I think riff-raff, you know, we'd say, well, you know, they're not part of the elite. And I think he, he was actually using that ironically um, to say that music doesn't really belong in elites. Riff is easier because riff is, you know, a basic, it can be a bass line or something like that. 
that jazz and pop music is built on. So I think that's where the title comes from. And from memory, and I think it's got a Peter Herford link here because it was actually premiered, and I could be wrong, on the organ of St Albans Abbey, where Peter Herford was, of course, organist for many years by the assistant director of music, a fantastic guy called Andrew Parnell. I came across it, I suppose, when I started St Giles, I'd have been straight out of Cambridge. So I was about 21, um, a boyish-looking figure. I'm very into my outdoor sports, especially mountain biking. And I had a crazy idea to base a major event for the Edinburgh International Jazz Festival in St Giles. Now, you need to know a bit about St Giles to know how crazy that would have been. This is back in, I suppose, the late 80s. It was an ultra, I suppose, conservative, dare I use the word snobbish, and, you know, the church elders would dress up in tailcoats and all that sort of thing. And it was where, I, you know, to, to go back to the Maggie Smith, Prime of Miss Jean Brodie reference, it's where, I suppose, the creme de la creme of Presbyterian Edinburgh might like to see themselves. So, actually, back then, the idea of bringing a jazz festival into this building was quite um, a strange one. I, w I was surprised I got away with it. So, I organised, um, I suppose there were three acts in total... The first group were the Blind Boys of Alabama, which is a fantastic singing group. And they literally came into the cathedral, all holding onto each other's shoulders and process around doing this wonderful harmony singing. And the conclusion of the concert was Dick Hyman, who, has, as you know, I've, has become a good friend and I've recorded his organ music. And Dick Hyman was improvising and playing Fats Waller. I was in between the um, Blind Boys of Alabama and Dick Hyman. I suppose I was sort of a warmer pact for Dick Hyman with um, the Giles Swain, which is neither jazz, neither pop, neither minimalism. It's just a fantastic piece in its own right. And actually, the recording I think I've let you have is from my rehearsal for that performance so it's not been edited, it's not a commercial recording. There might be the odd scrape note, as you'll hear. And I think from memory, I also used the wonderful bells. There's a row of bells that can be s sounded from the manuals or the pedals on St. Giles' organ. Oh, brilliant. I hadn't read a cymbal stone or something like that. No, it's, it's um, tuned bells. So, you know, you can just play up the notes of the scale and you, you hear a, a is it carillon? Oh, yes, yes. That that sort of thing. Um, I think also because Giles Swain, it works in a very big acoustic because the harmonic rate of the piece is very slow. And yet there's a lot of detail and an awful lot of rhythm in the piece. And St Giles has got a fantastic big acoustic, but the Riga organ also because of its classical design and the fact it speaks very directly into the building can project that detail at the same time. I'd, I'd probably say it's the perfect organ for this sort of music. That's wonderful. But this is a, perhaps a tangent to go on, but you're talking about jazz and, and pop earlier. I think I'm right in saying you're probably one of the only, if not the only cathedral organist in the country who has a sideline playing the drum kit. Is that right? 
I'm sure as soon as this goes out, David, you'll be flooded with um, a mailbag of people saying they are cathedral organs and also play the drums. Yeah, I think the drums for me, um, I've naturally got a very good sense of pitch, got perfect pitch. And hearing music, I, I didn't learn to read music till I was sort of well into my teenage years, you know, learn to read it properly. But I could always play everything by ear. I was also always a bit more worried about my sense of rhythm because I think that's normally a particularly weak area for organists. You know, we, we swim around in these great big buildings and I certainly find if I can't tap my foot a little bit at some points along to someone else playing, my brain quickly loses interest in it. So, yeah, I decided to take up the drums. Um, I've played in a few pop groups in um, Huddersfield. Sadly, in the past year or so, I've had to let my drum kit go when I left Huddersfield and moved to a small flat in the city centre of Leeds. I didn't think I'd be too popular with the neighbours with a full drum kit. Noise abatement officer comes around. Exactly. <laughs> and I guess we're an, another tangent here, but we, we, we could almost go from the jazz festival, Dick Hyman playing Fat Swaller, some years back, but to Scott Joplin, because you're going to include some Scott Joplin in your programme, aren't you, from, I think, Huddersfield Town Hall, if that's right. That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a fantastic instrument in Huddersfield Town Hall. As you know, there's, I suppose, the three most famous town hall organs would be Huddersfield, Birmingham, and, of course, the instrument in Leeds. And I've played um, recitals on all of them a few times, Huddersfield is by far and away the best instrument. It just hangs together beautifully. The hall is fantastic. There's not really many bum stops on it. And for the Joplin piece, I used some of the more theatre organy sounds. Now, to get a theatre organy sound, you often need something, a sort of whiny reed sound, but also putting a bit of vibrato on it. And on the organ, this vibrato comes from something called a tremulant. And you can have a very tasteful tremulant, like a classical violinist might use uh, when playing solo. Or you can have a very vulgar tremulant. The one in Huddersfield Town Hall is certainly of the latter variety and turns into a great theatre organ. And I think they've got some percussion stops, haven't they? I, I remember very vaguely on the solo division there, is there some type of, is it a glockenspiel or a carillon? Mentioning having played it in, in um, you know, the percussion in Edinburgh. I vaguely remember. That's right. Yeah, there's a sort of little bell affair. Um, <laughs> when I last went there, uh, most of it wasn't working, but I'm sure probably David Wood has got that all sorted and I'm sure it's working now. I mean, there are wonderful concerts there every week, as I'm sure you've, you've known by mm. Gordon Stewart, um, Nice man I worked with, I suppose, very near the start of my career at Blackburn Cathedral. Uh, but they're, they're really worth going to, not just for the organ playing, but actually to see someone that's a fantastic showman of the organ. Because I think sometimes our instrument lacks these sort of great showmen and show women that other instruments do have. And there's a really important place still, I think, for the Town Hall organ recital, because mentioning... Um, Birmingham earlier and obviously Thomas Trotter has been there since the early 80s hasn't he but I'm thinking also about some years back in a long way back in fact in Liverpool with WT Best um, and back then of course we didn't have Spotify 
YouTube, Apple Music, whatever, uh, people couldn't really go and hear an orchestra quite so easily and it would have cost an awful lot of money to get an orchestra together. So the, the town hall organist would have put all of that repertoire onto an organ. And I think, I'm sure I read somewhere that Best had three to 4,000 pieces in his repertoire and he was he almost got on the nerves of the orchestras because he would go to the local library, get out his full orchestral score, his piano score, and on he'd go and play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or Carolian Overture or whatever for the enjoyment of these listeners. And in Victorian England, almost the town hall was, was that real hub of music making to help people learn some of these great pieces of the repertoire. Do you think we've still got a place for that in, in uh, you know, 2020? It's a complicated question, that, David, um, because obviously, yeah, at one time, you know, we didn't have as many orchestras. It, they weren't as accessible as they were. Um, and the organ can do an impersonation of an orchestra, but it does so at a price um, because I certainly find, you know, looking at recital programmes and also audience tastes, the preference is often for music that actually wasn't written for the organ. Um, in other words, not organ music, uh, but rather for transcription. Now, this sounds rather purist, but I'm trying to think of any other musical instrument that's actually taken seriously where the repertoire that wasn't written for it can actually be more popular than the repertoire that is written for it. It's a good point, isn't it? Because there's a real vogue for transcribing symphonies. And off the top of my head, I'm sure behind me on a shelf here is a, an old book of Beethoven symphonies for piano duet. And I don't think anyone would really go out there and, and play those as a concert. They're great to get to know the repertoire, but perhaps it's to do with the organ's ability at colouring. But it's an interesting point you make that transcriptions, perhaps on the organ, are, are, are almost forming as viable a piece in a recital as, say, a symphony by, I don't know, Vidor or, a, dare I say, a Bach trio sonata. Do you think it's important to get a balance in some way? I don't think we hear enough Bach, actually. I mean, he wrote so much, um, often described as the greatest genius that ever lived. It's in a different style. It's not as easy on modern ears, but, you know, like all art... Um, it's well worth the effort to sort of immerse yourself in that sort of idiom. The problem with transcriptions is they are easy and they also have the wow gimmicky factor about them, which is irresistible to audiences. Therefore, you can't knock it, can you? No, no. Well, if it, it, I suppose it, it puts bums on seats. And going back to the Huddersfield um, Town Hall mention you made, there, there are very, very loyal and and i might say big audiences who go there and i suppose for many of us trying to organize organ recital series you know in, in normal time when we have a live audience in a church or a cathedral or a town hall any audiences that number three figures or more we feel we've done well so somewhere like huddersfield where it is in the hundreds it, it obviously it shows they're doing something correct with their with their programming and i think a lot of this is down to gordon's great skill because he mixes i suppose repertoire music written for the organ with transcriptions and he understands and cares for his audience you know and I think that really is a, a winning combination there in mm. Huddersfield. Absolutely. Now one of the other things about um, your musical activities that always interests me is traveling around to play in different countries and one of your I suppose your remaining piece in the program um, of piece by Vienne was recorded in Cologne Cathedral wasn't it? 
It certainly was. And, you know, if the piece is called Cathedrales, um, could could you think of a better cathedral in the world to actually record it? <laughs> Again, it's a vast building um, and playing a recital there is as near as any organist will come to, I suppose, doing a pop concert. You get about 3,000 people coming to the concerts. It's a massive event. You are miles away from the audience. Um, I mean, there's no point really in putting your smart clothes on because nobody can see you. You're just this dot in the distance. In fact, I'd, I'd actually, for this recital, I'd underestimated how far it was from the nave to the organ and my good friend Franck Chazniak had come over to help me register and turn pages and I think the concert began about eight o'clock so we were sort of casually strolling around on a a lovely summer's evening and I said but let's get an ice cream we've got time there's only you know it's good 15 minutes before the concert a bit of sugar will give me some energy and as we were licking away happily on our ice creams I suddenly realised, actually, to get up to that organ, you have to take two elevators, and there's a very considerable walk between the two. So I arrived at Cologne Cathedral Organ, face covered in ice cream and rather breathless as I started the first speech, which I think was Cathedrals, actually. Wow, it's 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 on my bucket list of places to go and play. Particularly, I think, am I right, they've got almost two or well they have got two organs haven't they one up in the nave and then one further in a transept what's it like to can you use them both together or do you have to do it sparingly yeah it it really is one organ I, I suppose the original organ which I'm guessing and I'd have to check this will be into war that's daddy Kleiss has made that And then Philip Kleiss has done the organ that hangs actually over the nave in the transept. And you play them as one instrument. The newer organ, the Philip Kleiss one, does have a separate console. It's not used very often and it would certainly limit what you could do in a recital. But like any organ, it's not so much what the pipes are like. The big thing for playing the organ is what the building's like because... Our resonating chamber, just as a guitar has its body, a a violin has its body, the organ's resonating chamber is the building. And my goodness, you couldn't get a more amazing resonating chamber than Cologne Cathedral. Because, of course, the the so-called small organ up in the nave, when when you, I guess you see it from a distance, it does look reasonably small. But when you see pictures of it, particularly with someone standing in in the console gallery, and you don't want a fear of heights playing there, you realise actually that is a substantial instrument in its own right, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's sort of twice the size of an average UK cathedral organ, just just this so-called small organ in the first place. And playing these two instruments together in this huge resonating chamber of Cologne Cathedral is quite a challenge. I I remember Peter Herford always saying to me, as an organist, you have to have your ears at least 50 metres away from the keyboard. And I think in in the case of Cologne Cathedral, you know, you could put your ears about a quarter of a mile away from the keyboard. So that's why if you're playing in these big venues, and most of my concerts tend to be abroad, and you've not got long to get used to the instrument, it's really helpful to have someone there listening down in the church because 
you can almost guarantee if things sound right to you in terms of tempo and registration at the console, they're almost certainly going to be off to somebody listening down in the building. So we're often in the worst seats in the house, aren't we? And the organ console, as you say, if it sounds good to us, chances are it might sound rushed or lack of space or out of balance. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful point to make that. Absolutely. And I think getting the, the tempo right is so important in, in playing organ music because buildings have tempos, speeds that music works in, and they're all very different. You, you can't, I mean, all organists know this, you, you cannot have the sort of maxim that I play piece X at this speed anywhere because um, in one place it'll sound fantastic in another place it'll sound too slow and then in another place it'll be unintelligible because it'll be a jumble of notes as the sound ricochets off all the walls in a big cathedral. Yes, yes, I agree completely. I guess that one of the final things I'd like to touch on is perhaps moving away from organ music but thinking about your, your so-called day job. And perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about how the Diocese of Leeds Music has, has responded to these very, very difficult and, uh, and dare I say, um, unforeseen circumstances we find ourselves in. Well, I, I think for all of us, you know, yourself included, David, that this has been probably the most challenging time in our careers. How do people that are working with children all day and doing the dreaded singing, um, you know, that with a, an army of child super spreaders, apparently, adapt a programme that can survive when, with schools closed, singing looks like it's got a bit of an uncertain future, um, certainly for the next um, few years going forward. So we've moved everything online, as you know, all your teachings online. It's fantastic. You've got this festival online. And the bigger piece of work is to move our 18 after school choirs online, which they're all doing now. They're all rehearsing at the same time as they would have done usually. And also creating a school singing programme channel, which serves our 53 schools that we work in and four and a half thousand children and it's interesting actually because there are gains through working this way we're getting viewers for the school singing program channel from right across the country and indeed world now we've got teachers watching it for continuing professional development i mean are you finding the same thing with the organ videos the the organ youtube is it increasing audience or can, is it too early to say yet? Well, I think it, in many ways it is because um, uh, to spare our, our collective blushes, the preview we did a few weeks ago, I think now has had about 750 views. Now, if you put that in context of our average recital audience, say on a good day, we got 100, a very good day. That's already many times bigger. And, uh, and I do hope, again, always looking for a silver lining in this, that we can with 2021 and onwards, we can think about doing our entire festival with an online streaming presence. And I think, uh, you know, the, the the global power of the internet, there's no reason why our concerts next year and onwards can't be viewed by someone, say, in southern Australia or Texas, you know. And I, I think that's a great asset, really, isn't it, that we can make these things truly international, not just in terms of people who come to play for us, but people who can enjoy this wherever they meet, may be in the world. Absolutely. I, I think as, as long as it doesn't, as long as people aren't too scared to come into the actual cathedral, because, you know, worries about health, the demographic of 
a lot of organ recital audiences is on the older end, although I know with a lot of your work, David, um, you know, a, a lot of your organists are teenagers and, and, and younger. But I, I think to really experience the organ properly, you have to be in that thing that I was talking about, the resonating chamber. And, and of course, the resonating chamber for us is a house of God. It's it's the church. And if, if you're not there, you're never quite experiencing the specialness of what of what makes the organ kind of unique and probably why organs are put in churches in the first place they've just got that extra something whereby they can speak i suppose on behalf of man for god you know that that was the sort of idea in the french classical tradition where you'd have your big organ on the west end people down below singing the gregorian chants the organist improvising on it and it's sort of taking that prayer, people's prayer, a bit like a candle and, um, you know, sending it into the thing that we limit by calling it God. I think I would, I'd be wrong to try and top any comments you made there. And I, I dare I say that's a really lovely way for us to end. So um, if I can just give another mention to the concert that you've kindly provided music for on Monday. So as ever, that's 1.15 on our YouTube channel, Leoff Live. Dot org dot uk to hear works by Vienne, Swain, and then finally Scott Joplin. And it's worth me just saying before I forget that next week my guest will be Tom Bell, who's director of the Royal College of Organists Northern Area. And Tom is going to be talking a little bit about the work he's been doing on the Orgelbuchlein project, which is a several-year multinational project to complete the missing chorales in J.S. Bach's original Orgelbuchlein. And also in there, he's going to be talking about some work he's doing to emulate WT Best involving growing a beard and dressing in steampunk clothing. So uh, with that, thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to you joining us on Monday for the organ recital given by Ben Saunders and then also joining us next Friday for our next podcast. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.